Good evening to everyone. Uh, uh, please bear with me a few minutes as we are waiting for our speaker to join us. Uh, Dr. Bahout is on his way uh, to join us on the Zoom. Um, uh, in the meantime, let me say a few words of introduction. Um, uh, my name is Jean-Luc Saman, and I will be uh, your host uh, for the next uh, hour. Uh, we will be discussing uh, the issue of uh, Lebanon, uh, with uh, a big question mark being, uh, is Lebanon on the brink of uh, uh, a new civil war? Uh, just a few words on the, uh, the origin of this uh, talk. Uh, as uh, most of you uh, probably saw in the news about a year ago, Lebanon uh, uh, shocked uh, the public opinion worldwide uh, with the explosion of the port in Beirut uh, in the summer of 2020. Uh, but the explosion in the port of Beirut uh, was not really the starting point of the crisis uh, in the country. Uh, it could be seen uh, rather as the culminating point, uh, the catalyst for everything that was going wrong in a sense inside the country. So what we're going to try to do uh, for the next hour is to unpack the, uh, the different dimensions uh, of this crisis uh, in Lebanon. Uh, in a sense, the crisis in Lebanon is a cocktail, if I can use that expression, between domestic, uh, economic, regional uh, issues. Uh, just a few words, for instance, uh, on the economic and financial dimension of the crisis that we will be exploring in a few minutes. Uh, the GDP of Lebanon in, 2009, in 2018 was considered to represent about $55 billion. This year, it is estimated to represent $20 billion. So you can have here a scale of the economic crisis. The GDP per capita fell by about 37%. And what it means is that today we uh, consider that about 78% of the Lebanese population is below the poverty line. Uh, in addition to this economic crisis, or maybe to explain this economic crisis, you have uh, the inability, uh, the enduring inability of uh, re repeated governments in Beirut uh, to find a solution and to impl implement the reforms which have been demanded by the international community, and in particular by the International Monetary uh, Fund. Uh, not, uh, in addition to that also, you have something which is maybe at the core of the Lebanese crisis, which is the uh, exacerbation of sectarian uh, rivalries, the, uh, the way communities are uh, more and more uh, using the, uh, uh, the, the crisis, the ongoing crisis, to reunite their own agendas. And we see here uh, some elements, some relic uh, of the Lebanese civil war that lasted between 1975 and, 19, uh, and, uh, and 1989. Uh, in addition to that, finally, one thing which we will be exploring as well is how Lebanon is still, in a sense, the battleground of power plays in the Middle East. Uh, we see that very regularly uh, through the uh, conflicts between Israel uh, and Hezbollah. Hezbollah, uh, one of the political parties, as well as the military organizations uh, in uh, Lebanon. 
we see also the influence of Iran, which is one of the main sponsors uh, of Hezbollah inside Lebanon. And we also see uh, uh, the competition between Gulf states inside, uh, inside Lebanon, recently with the dispute uh, between the Lebanese government and uh, Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, recalling his amb its ambassador following uh, uh, statements, uh, negative statements by one of the Lebanese ministers on the war in Yemen. Uh, so this, as I said, is a cocktail uh, of many different issues that altogether create uh, the Lebanese crisis. As I said, we will try as much as possible to unpack all these dimensions uh, for the next hour. And to do that, uh, the, the Middle East Institute invited one of the prominent uh, experts on uh, Lebanon. Uh, we will be discussing all these different elements uh, with Dr. Joseph Bahout, who is joining us uh, from uh, Beirut, where he is the director of the Isan Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. Uh, let me add that uh, uh, Dr. Bahout has uh, extensive experience, not only just in Lebanon, but has been working for the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs in France, as well as a research, a senior research fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace uh, in Washington, DC. Um, let me check uh, if uh, Dr. Pahout uh, has been able to join us. Uh, I think uh, we are still having a, a, an issue with the, uh, is, access to the Zoom link. Um, I'll, maybe in this case, I'll, uh, I'll have the, uh, uh, the, the challenge of uh, entertaining uh, uh, this, uh, this uh, webinar uh, in the meantime. Uh, let me just uh, add one element that might be also uh, relevant for us in the discussion, which is the role of the international community. Uh, as I said, uh, this is, uh, Lebanon can be seen as the battleground for regional competition uh, between a Middle East uh, powers such as Iran, such as Israel or the Gulf states. Uh, but as we've seen, especially over the last year since the crisis uh, started with the, the, the explosion of the port in Beirut, we've seen also greater interests of uh, external powers. Uh, France has been uh, at the, the front line of the international efforts to uh, solve the uh, Lebanese crisis. Uh, President Macron made it a personal mission uh, last year, uh, visiting the country twice uh, following the explosion of uh, the, the port of Beirut. And then uh, we have seen also the role of the International Monetary Fund, who, which is a crucial actor uh, with regards to the economic and financial uh, dimensions of the crisis. Uh, having said that, uh, this is uh, again uh, uh, this is again uh, impossible in a sense to uh, to solve the, the crisis uh, only from the outside. Meaning that what we've seen over the last year with the uh, the efforts of the international community is that uh, this uh, crisis can only be eventually solved from the inside, meaning that it has to be solved by the uh, domestic uh, actors, that uh, the government in Beirut, uh, as well as the, um, 
the different communities have to uh, uh, respond to this uh, crisis. Let me uh, add a few words on the organization of our webinar as uh, uh, Dr. Bahout is joining us, uh, uh, as it has been the case in previous uh, in previous events of the Middle East Institute. Uh, if you have questions, please uh, uh, put them in the chat uh, and I will then uh, try to uh, uh, ask them as much as possible, as many as possible. Uh, the way we will uh, conduct this, uh, this, uh, this talk is uh, by uh, by asking our speaker who is uh, literally joining us right now. Uh, I believe there were some issues with the internet in uh, Lebanon. So I think you have here a concrete example of the many challenges uh, in the country. Uh, introduction to the uh, the current situation in uh, Lebanon, but the first question, uh, just to give a, a, a feeling uh, for the people in Singapore about how is it today for the people uh, in Lebanon. I, I just mentioned the fact that about 78% of the population is now living under the poverty line. Can you just tell us very briefly, maybe concretely, what is it to live under this current financial crisis? Mm -hmm. Uh, look, uh, first of all, thank you, Jean-Louis, and uh, Jean-Louis, thank you for, for the Middle East Institute, and I'm really extremely sorry for the delay, but, uh, uh, and this is partly a way to answer you. I mean, uh, I arrived to my office uh, something like half an hour ago, and uh, I, I was very quickly confronted with uh, uh, slow internet. Uh, we are now on generators, so the, the computer has some, some problems and etc. Uh, so this is the way, uh, in fact, uh, the normal average Lebanese are struggling with day-to-day -day life. Uh, to give you a, a more a broader answer, uh, let me take, it, uh, take issues one by one. First of all, uh, it's been now two years that the banking sector in the country is completely uh, almost in shambles. It's, um, it has collapsed um, in, the, in the most extreme sense of the world. Uh, so the type of crisis that you could have uh, seen in Greece or elsewhere is mild uh, compared to Lebanon. Uh, this means that, for example, uh, even if you are uh, averagely wealthy in Lebanon, you cannot access physically your money, you cannot access your deposits. Uh, there is a kind of uh, informal capital control, although the, the government has not announced one. So you cannot uh, really, in fact, uh, use your money, uh, transfer it, uh, withdraw it. Your credit cards are completely today useless. Uh, you have a ceiling for uh, withdrawals, and the ceiling is barely enough for a normal family to, uh, to live. So you have to have uh, cash on the side. Uh, this is one side of the problem that is becoming really uh, very tough for everyone. Uh, the second problem that is more, uh, let's say, graver is that the, the national currency has lost more than uh, nine-tenths of its value, uh, meaning that the, the salaries have uh, completely melt. 
and we'll talk about it maybe later on. Uh, this has maybe potentially very important and uh, dramatic effects when you know, for example, that uh, the salary of the wage of, uh, of a soldier today in Lebanon is something like $25, uh, meaning that uh, this person is barely eating. Uh, he will probably be demoralized if things go on like that. We don't know if they will still obey their command. Uh, this is part of the problem. Uh, salaries are on the ground, on the, I mean, really have melted. People cannot uh, make a subsistence. Uh, it's been now six, seven months. We have uh, drastic electricity cuts. So uh, it means that the average Lebanese households uh, are living with uh, six to seven hours electricity per day, uh, private generators included because the price of fuel has also rocketed and uh, the generators are unable to, uh, to, to provide themselves with fuel. Uh, we had a, a gas station crisis, so we had to stay home for two, three months because uh, you couldn't even drive your car. Um, uh, the medics are starting to also lack. We have a, a, a shortage of, of medics. People uh, who are abroad are coming back to Lebanon or people who have family abroad are sending uh, medics to Lebanon uh, with full luggages. Uh, so really we are in a country, and this is maybe the most important point, in a country where usually uh, material quality of life was not a problem. Lebanon has always had political problems, security problems, but it was an affluent country. For the first time in its history, the country is really becoming a, a country that uh, could be ranked in, in, the, in the category of countries that need international help. I was talking with the UN representative last time and the, she was telling me that for the first time in history, Lebanon is now uh, ranked in the 10 countries that need help from the uh, World Food uh, Program, which is completely uh, un unused in, in Lebanon. So these are the, these are the, the conditions. Now, of course, we will need to more to talk about more uh, macro issues. What does it mean in terms of macroeconomy and in terms of political development? But this is only to give you an idea of the day-to-day -day situation. Well, if if we go back to maybe to the origins, I mean, if you had to uh, pick one or two of the main reasons for why Lebanon in, is in that situation now. Well, how would you explain, uh, because as you said, I mean, uh, Lebanon used to, uh, not, not, is not used to this kind of situation. So how would you explain uh, the mm -hmm. turn of events? What, what yeah. are the reasons? In fact, uh, unfortunately, it has been a long time coming, uh, this crisis. I mean, uh, people who are surprised today are either, uh, I mean, uh, are in myopia or in fact are in denial because uh, it has been a while that this crisis has been building up. Uh, I, I, would, I would maybe single out two reasons to answer your question or two causes. Uh, the first one is the accumulation of uh, economic, of political economy choices that were made by the Lebanese elite uh, since the end of the war. So this crisis is not new. Uh, the Ponzi scheme, as we call it, has been building up for more than two decades now, or one decade and a half. It was a kind of indirect rentier economy, living on remittances from uh, Lebanese expats, uh, living on the idea that Lebanon could not be a productive country. So the banking sector was uh, hypertrophic. 
living on the idea that you can only live out of uh, the largesses of the Gulf states and, and regional uh, uh, countries and etc. And you can live by uh, allowing the Lebanese society to really live uh, above its means by serving very high interest rates uh, and, and other, uh, uh, let's say, returns. Uh, by simply doing some uh, financial engineering, et cetera, et cetera. All this bubble, in fact, has exploded two years ago, and many were seeing this coming. Uh, so this is the end of a very artificial financial model uh, that allowed the political class, in fact, to roll uh, the ball and to kick the can uh, down the road, the can of reforms, the can of seriously building a viable economy, and seriously putting the country on uh, the track of being more productive and more serious. The second cause probably that compounded uh, all this and, and led to the explosion is the geopolitical situation and the political situation, uh, namely the loss of confidence uh, by the Lebanese in their system with time and uh, the complete uh, loss of confidence of the regional stakeholders in Lebanon uh, because of many issues, uh, mainly uh, geopolitical, and we have to admit that probably the choices that were made by uh, the potent forces in Lebanon, like Hezbollah and others, meaning uh, entering the war in Yemen, uh, being part of the war in Syria, having a share in the crisis in Iraq, led to the uh, punishment of Lebanon by several countries that in fact made a, a kind of uh, financial siege uh, against the financial system. Uh, this has led to the rarification of uh, remittances, of the flow of money, and it has led also to the exacerbation of this crisis. But uh, for the first time, I think, in its history, uh, the nature of the crisis in Lebanon today is really structural. It is no more something that you can deal with with certain engineerings. You have now to address the root cause of the problem of this country, meaning its political construct, its economic construct, and its social construct. So this crisis could be an opportunity to revise this, but unfortunately, the opportunity today is not seizable because people are really struggling for the day to day and also the regional environment is still volatile and does not allow uh, for uh, calmly and coldly uh, addressing and answering these questions. Uh, let, let's focus maybe here on one element. You, you mentioned uh, the role of uh, the, the, the political elite and uh, in particular how in a sense, the civil war and the uh, the the, uh, the end result of the civil war is still shaping uh, Lebanese politics. Can you maybe say a few words uh, on that? Because for uh, for the audience in Singapore, this uh, this might be uh, uh, a bit far away. The um, can you say a few words on how the balance of power, if I can say so, or the dis distribution of power among the different communities, different sectarian leaders, is still, in a sense, defining the Lebanese, Lebanese no. political system. And at the same time, it might actually be the, the problem uh, to solve this crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are many levels in, in your question and in what you rightly depict. Uh, there is the level of sectarianism that is, in fact, uh, kind of congenital uh, of the construction of the, of the country, or at least of the modern Lebanese state. 
this is a problem, of course, but uh, this problem cannot explain by itself alone uh, everything. Uh, for example, saying that sectarianism alone has led to the Lebanese war is a, a kind of shortcut. It has, of course, been a, a, a sine qua non reason, but it was not the only reason. Uh, the second layer of what you are saying, so uh, just to continue on this first point, sectarianism is still uh, very potent today in Lebanon. It is even more potent than ever. Uh, it has created, of course, circuits of corruption, clientelism, nepotism that have crippled the Lebanese state. Plus, it has uh, exacerbated the paralysis of the state and the decision making. But this alone cannot only explain what is happening today. What is also explaining today's uh, crisis is, and you alluded to it, is the legacy of the war that has been unaddressed by lack of, uh, you can choose lucidity, courage, uh, boldness, uh, risk-taking of the political elite, but also, and we have to admit it, Jean-Lou, uh, uh, also the apathy of the Lebanese society. Uh, I mean, the, the, the sudden uh, surge and wake up uh, awakening of the Lebanese society two years ago is a bit late. I mean, they could have been more aware and conscious that this political elite that is partly inherited from the past, partly inherited from the uh, post-war era, the landlords, the warlords uh, turned and transformed into politician, uh, where uh, all this political system was leading the society to this uh, destruction and ruin, but unfortunately, uh, society was also bribed. I mean, it was living on largesses due to the sectarian system, uh, nepotism and clientelism, also because of the economic uh, choices that allowed the Lebanese to live well in a kind of uh, mirage, in a kind of illusion, in fact, that was uh, addictive. And also because, uh, and we have to tell, to say it, that the Lebanese individually are maybe brilliant and successful, but collectively uh, do not have the stomach and, and the appetite and the, the stamina for constructing uh, real political forces. So in fact, they uh, completely let the public sphere uh, uh, aside and they, they completely left it to the politicians and now they are trying to cope with all uh, these results. So you have sectarianism, you have the result of the war, you have the result of the post-war era that we're not talking about enough, the choices that were made at, at that point, and you have a society that uh, is interested in politics only in, uh, in, in the sense that it can provide it uh, ways of living uh, uh, leisurely and luxuriously, but is not in fact politically involved in the sense of having, uh, let's say, of developing projects, alternatives, etc. And you see it today very starkly with the, the I think, the, the bad situation of the opposition. Uh, a lot of people are betting today on elections uh, next spring to, to induce a change in the country. But when you look at, uh, at the forces of change, the forces of opposition, uh, also they have not done their homework. So uh, challenging the system, and the system in Lebanon is very strong. The state is weak, but the system is very strong. Challenging the system with only a few slogans and uh, you know, part-time politics and et cetera will not, will not make it. It will not be enough. So the system is here to stay, unfortunately. 
This will probably aggravate the collapse and the ruin, uh, and it will probably impoverish the country for decades to come. So uh, in a nutshell, what we can say, Jean-Loup, is that uh, the Lebanon of yesterday is over. Uh, even sectarianism of yesterday is over. Today, the diseases and the symptoms of the country are much graver and much deeper than that. Uh, it's a country that can uh, uh, simply not function anymore uh, on the technical level, on the on the day-to-day -day level, we were talking about it. And also it is confronting for the first time in its history, a very volatile regional situation whereby the uh, usual, the classical, the traditional regional stakeholders are not even concerned or caring about what's happening in Lebanon. The way the Gulf states are turning their back to the country is very symptomatic. Uh, the way the West is turning its back on Lebanon is very symptomatic. The, the, the level of uh, Western care for Lebanon is today at its minimum. Uh, other players uh, have interests, but uh, these interests are not enough to float the country, to put it afloat again. Uh, be them Iran or the Syrian regime or Russia or etc. They are only looking for, let's say, ameliorating their position in the Levant. And Lebanon is one uh, case, is one, is one, uh, let's say, box in in this game. Uh, so I think that for the first time, the Lebanese are left uh, to themselves, and their problems are enormous, and they don't have uh, the stamina, the capacity, and the bandwidth. Uh, to address them. So this is why I think for the first time, the crisis is reaching the level of existential. Thank you. I mean, we'll, we'll come back to this uh, point on uh, the regional actors uh, in a few minutes. But before that, uh, I'd like specifically to ask you a question uh, on the, the domestic uh, actors and in particular Hezbollah, uh, because seen from the outside uh, a lot of the people usually look at lebanon and uh point at hezbollah as one of the main reasons if not the main reason for all the issues as you explained this is much co more complex but could you say maybe a few words uh, on the public perception today uh in lebanon of hezbollah uh if there's any way to measure the public opinion, especially after the, the explosion of the port last year. Uh, is You mentioned also Hezbollah's commitment, Hezbollah intervention in Syria. How does that affect the public perception of Hezbollah now inside the country? Mm -hmm. uh, here again, uh, there are several layers. Um, it's a very complex question. Uh, first of all, the diagnosis, I mean, the cold uh, diagnosis. Hezbollah is today, and this is beyond any discussion, I mean, it's not even a polemical question anymore. Hezbollah is today uh, the predominant force in Lebanon. It is, uh, if not uh, completely the state, but it is not only the state within a state, but it is the state above the state. Every strategic decision in Lebanon cannot be made uh, without the acquiescence of Hezbollah. This is beyond discussion. Now, the level of, uh, let's say, lethality of this is, of course, to be uh, discussed. And the way to deal with this is, of course, a matter of, of discussion. Now, uh, Hezbollah has been, has, reached, has been able to reach this level of predominance because of many factors. First of all, a very steady, 
constant and resolute investment uh, uh, by Iran in, in this part of the Levant. Uh, probably Hezbollah is the, the biggest investment of Iran outside Iran, uh, financially, symbolically, politically, etc. Uh, and it has been, uh, in that sense, a success story for Iran, uh, partly explained by uh, uh, strategic and tactical mistakes done by uh, its adversaries. The latest in date is this Gulf, uh, uh, let's say, indifference towards Lebanon that will probably increase Hezbollah's uh, uh, grip on the country because the vacuum will be filled probably by Iran and by Hezbollah. Uh, the regional dynamic, uh, this is the second or third point, the regional dynamic is also adding to that because Iran is, we like it or not, uh, winning in the region. I mean, it is uh, 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 taking uh, marking points in Yemen, in Iraq, albeit all things, in Syria, definitely, um, in Lebanon. And uh, there is also a, today a Western more or less passive acceptance uh, of this situation and the negotiation about the GCPOA and, and other dynamics uh, are increasing this, uh, this dynamic. And this is probably giving also Hezbollah the perception that it is, it is winning in the region. So this win has to be translated in Lebanon. Now the perception by other parties in Lebanon of this oscillate between extreme cynicism saying, okay, this is uh, the new uh, potent actor. We have normalized with Syria in the 90s. Now we have to normalize with Hezbollah and Iran again. And uh, I think that the terms of this normalization are not exactly yet under discussion, but it will become the case. And you have another part of society that is living in a kind of, um, I would say a, a mix of denial and anger towards that, uh, but that prevent this part of society of really building a strategy uh, to counter or to, let's say, coexist with this state of affairs. So you, this is where you have, um, I think, partly the explanation of this, uh, uh, let's say, increasing and very uh, worrying passivity in Lebanese society that is translated in the brain drain, in the emigration of the middle class, in the fact that people are already, uh, let's say, saying, okay, this is uh, irreal, we cannot change things, uh, so let's look for something elsewhere. Um, and again, I come back to what I was saying, the, the, the level of impreparedness of the, the opposition forces is very symptomatic because in fact they, they are not confronting exactly uh, the problem and they are not crafting the weapons and the tools that will allow them to, to confront this problem. So the perception is uh, unanimously today in Lebanon that of a country that has fallen in the hands of and of Iran. Uh, and uh, I told you the reaction to that are threefold cynicism and adaptation, uh, uh, anger and denial, but that lead to nowhere, and exit uh, uh, drain and emigration and idea that this country is no uh, ours, quote unquote. So these are the three reactions. Uh, the problem, or I think one interesting question that could be raised 
is uh, what does Hezbollah intend to do with this victory? I mean, how, what, how does Hezbollah intend to govern, quote unquote, Lebanon once it will become uh, completely uh, in its hand? And this is, I think, a question that few people have an answer to because it's difficult to have this dialogue with Hezbollah uh, now. And second, because many people don't want to have this dialogue with Hezbollah. That, I mean, this leads us to um, a lot of questions. Uh, I, uh, I'm receiving a lot of questions from uh, our audience. Uh, uh, let's unpack the, the, the regional dimension here. Um, and you mentioned uh, Hezbollah's strength inside the country, Iran's influence. Uh, we, I mean, uh, in August, there were, uh, again, uh, exchange of rockets, exchange of fire uh, from south of Lebanon uh, to uh, Israel. And for a few days, it almost looked uh, like there could be a potential a new conflict between Israel and Hezbollah. The last conflict between uh, Israel and Hezbollah happened in 2006. So it's, a, it's rather old now, uh, given the frequency of uh, Israel's conflict uh, in the region. Uh, how do you see Hezbollah's uh, strategy, if there is a strategy, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel? Uh, how do you explain uh, these last exchange of fire? Is it just a gamble? Do you see that as miscalculation? How do you make sense of uh, this current situation? Yeah, uh, first of all, no, uh, Hezbollah has definitely has a strategy towards Israel. Lebanon doesn't have, but Hezbollah has a strategy. Uh, it's uh, probably it has a bet, not a better, but it has more of a strategy towards Israel than Israel has a strategy towards Hezbollah because. Israel is in fact a bit lost, uh, lost when it comes to Hezbollah. They know that uh, the monster, quote unquote, as they depict it, is, is growing. They know that they will have to do something about it, but they don't know what to do about it. Hezbollah knows what to do about Israel. It, uh, it is a strategy of maximal deterrence, uh, meaning that uh, they know that Israel knows uh, knows that uh, it can shower Israel with uh, hundreds of thousands of, of rockets, 10,000 a day, uh, that these rockets are increasingly precise and lethal. And so the cost of any adventure in Lebanon by Israel is very high. This is the strategy of Hezbollah. Having said that, I'm, I'm convinced that neither Hezbollah nor Israel uh, want a conflict, an open, a, a, a real conflict at the border. They would accept uh, sporadic uh, flare-ups of violence, uh, exchange of rockets, rounds of violence, killings, etc. drone operations, yes. But this is what Israel calls uh, uh, wars within war, or wars within wars. And this is what uh, uh, Hezbollah calls the rules of engagement. And these rules of engagement, now that you have the Syrian theater close to Lebanon, in which Hezbollah is today the most potent force in the south, uh, is different. It's a, it's a Syrian Lebanese theater. It's much more complicated and complex. And uh, the rule of engagement, the rules of engagement between both parties is now uh, very well, uh, let's say, explained and understood by both. And they abide by it. 
uh, despite the round of violence that you have described, that was a, a kind of, uh, uh, it was a session of message exchanging between both at the eve of the resumption of the nuclear talks, uh, at the eve of, uh, of many things. Hezbollah today, and this is another aspect of the question, interesting that it, uh, because it brings us back to the crisis in Lebanon, on the top of the military strategic calculus of Hezbollah towards Israel, the, the social and economic situation of Lebanon today, and especially the Shia community that is suffering very much uh, out of the crisis, uh, will lead Hezbollah to be very careful not to embark in any, uh, let's say, wide range or open flare up of violence with Israel, because they, this is a price that will be very high not only for the Lebanese society today, but for the Shia community today. I mean, uh, reconstruction, if there is a, a, a huge amount of destruction because of the war, uh, 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 paying the, the, the society in terms of war and et cetera will be very burdenful for, uh, for Hezbollah. Uh, I already talked about the, the burdens and the costs for Israel. So the costs are very high for both parties. <laughs> Outside, and this is the third level of the answer, outside something that is really regional, that has to do with Iran, the West, the Gulf and Israel, if the negotiations about the GCPOA don't lead anywhere, uh, this will probably lead Hezbollah to make, and Israel to make the choice of embarking in a very costly adventure. But below this, I don't see for Lebanese or Syrian reasons, any open conflict in the horizon between Lebanon and Israel, despite uh, the, the, the idea in Israel that we cannot let Hezbollah grow this way in Lebanon. But again, I think the conundrum for Israel is that it doesn't have a real and clear cut answer to that. So no likelihood of uh, a coming war. This might be the first. Except, except if the GCPOA doesn't lead anywhere from now till one year, if Israel uh, considers or perceives that Iran is uh, uh, nearing the threshold, the nuclear threshold, that it has to do something about it, and Iran perceives that uh, such a strike could be existential, it will unleash Hezbollah against Israel. But without all these conditions, I think that no one will risk uh, a, a miscalculated war because it will, it will be really and definitely costly for both parties. Let, you mentioned uh, Syria. Uh, let's, let's say a few words on uh, the, the effects uh, or the implications of the, uh, the war in Syria. Uh, on Lebanon, and uh, I had one question uh, uh, from uh, our audience regarding the, uh, uh, the the refugees, the Syrian refugees, uh, as a burden or as a factor uh, of the uh, economic crisis in Lebanon. What is after now ten years of the the Syrian conflict? Uh, what is now the uh, the effect of the conflict on the situation in Lebanon. Yeah. Do you see that still in the same sense, or is sure. it evolved? Uh, look, there's a very fascinating paradox, Jean-Louis, uh, in this issue. During the 10 years of, of war raging in Syria, uh, all of us analysts were constantly waiting for the spillover to reach Lebanon and for Lebanon to be engulfed in this, in this crisis, and it has not. 
surprisingly. Lebanon proved to be resilient during the Syrian crisis. Paradoxically, now that the Syrian crisis is, is almost over, at least in war terms, in battle terms, the crisis is dangerous in Lebanon, and there is a, a risk of, of implosion in Lebanon. The recent uh, incidents in Tayune were a, a very worrying indicator. And here to your last question before, the risk of war with Israel is very low, but the risk of conflict inside Lebanon is increasingly high, paradoxically. So this is the first point. I mean, now that the war in Syria is over, probably uh, the risks of having a security, uh, let's say, uh, serious incident in Lebanon is higher for many reasons. Second, uh, the Syrian regime today that is off the hook now, probably for, for good, for a while, will become again a player in Lebanon. And this is something that the Lebanese are not perceiving enough. Syria will become what it used to be, namely a player in Lebanese politics. And this is, of course, uh, to be added to the Hezbollah question, because also Syria's coming back to Lebanon will uh, be, in a way, at least partially to the expense of Hezbollah's uh, domination in Lebanon. This is an interesting dynamic to watch. Third, the refugees. Uh, until today, contingent of refugees refugees in Lebanon, uh, probably in percent in the world. Uh, Lebanon is today probably the number one country in the world in uh, number of refugees per capita. Uh, uh, one, one inhabitant of the, the Lebanese soil is today one over four or five inhabitants of the Lebanese soils, soil is a Syrian refugee. This is enormous. Now, the question uh, of knowing what is the impact of Syrian refugees in Lebanon is debatable. Uh, we here at IFI, we have a, a very serious program on refugees. It's difficult to make the net, let's say, balance sheet of economic impact of these refugees. It is costly, of course, but it is also a benefit for uh, many segments in Lebanon. Low, uh, low, lowly paid uh, workforce, uh, without social uh, coverage and benefits. Uh, they are not completely, uh, let's say, intertwined with the Lebanese society yet. And historically, Lebanon has more or less the same amount of Syrian workers illegally working on its soil. So it's not a new phenomenon. Now, the question becomes more complicated when you put it in the framework of return or non-return. First of all, uh, will these refugees uh, partly or totally return to Syria? This is a very difficult question to answer. Second, and this is more difficult to answer, is the Syrian regime really willing to see these people coming back again to Syria? For a huge part of them, no. I don't think that the Syrian regime wants to take them back because politically, it's a risky population for the regime. So what will be the, 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 the future of, of this population? Is it staying on Lebanese soil? Under which condition? What will be the effect on the uh, demographic slash sectarian balance in the country? These are the questions that are today compounded with the economic crisis and compounded with the Lebanese, with the political, let's say, feverish political debate, because it is uh, eminently 
a confessional sectarian uh, problem and aspect. And this is, and uh, this is the last word on this, and you alluded to it, it could become under certain conditions, economic and regional, it could become a time bomb if some regional actors, for example, decide that the weaponization of refugees uh, could be a way uh, to address certain shortcomings of their own strategy in Lebanon, for example, against Hezbollah. This is the doomsday scenario for many people in Lebanon. It is the doomsday scenario for the army and the security apparatus in Lebanon. And uh, I think it should be a doomsday scenario for analysts like us if a decision is taken that someone has to confront Hezbollah by force and this someone cannot be but a kind of mercenary corp uh, that could largely be uh, recruited among the ranks of poor and desperate uh, refugees that are left uh, uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the open in Lebanon, uh, completely neglected by uh, their state and their regime, and uh, increasingly demonized by the Lebanese society uh, under the, you know, the natural uh, reflex or dynamic of the, of the scapegoat of the book emissaire. Let, let me now move to another um, dimension of the regional, uh, regional environment for Lebanon. Uh, you mentioned briefly Gulf states, and I'd like to, uh, uh, to go a bit further on that. Uh, as we mentioned in the introduction, there has been an ongoing uh, crisis, diplomatic crisis between Lebanon and Gulf states, and in particular, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think a few days ago, the Lebanese president, Michel Aoun, was uh, on Al Jazeera to explain that Lebanon wanted to... Uh, um, he was in Qatar, actually. He was visiting uh, he was, Qatar. He was indeed in Qatar, and uh, that he was seeking to mend ties uh, with the GCC states. Uh, could you maybe say a few words on the origins of this dispute, this diplomatic dispute, and also maybe from the Lebanese point of view, why is it important for Lebanon to have good relations with Gulf states? Uh, to start by, I mean, to, to answer the last question, it's easy. Uh, Lebanon is in dire need of this. First of all, I mean, very concretely, because there are more than 400,000 Lebanese working in the Gulf, expatriates in the Gulf, and uh, they make a, a, a living and they help uh, sustain their families in Lebanon. So you have probably 20 to 30% of the Lebanese society today that is living almost exclusively from remittances of their family members in the Gulf. So this is a question that is, is beyond debate. Uh, the second aspect is that uh, also economically, Lebanon has had uh, always traditionally uh, good ties with the Gulf. You can see it in the balance of payment, but you can see it also in the history of bank deposits in Lebanon. This is not always a good thing because it created addiction in Lebanon, but this is a fact of life. And, and today, uh, the fact that the Gulf capital uh, is not pouring into Lebanon is partly an, a, a component of the crisis. Third, because Lebanon is a, a small state within the Arab family, and it cannot really afford and, and really uh, have, have the luxury of being at uh, almost at war with uh, a, a very potent part of the Arab uh, uh, 
complex of the Arab state system, like it cannot take the risk of being at war with Syria or with Iraq or with Egypt historically, it cannot take the risk of being at war with, uh, you know, big dinosaurs like Saudi Arabia or the Emirates and, and etc. So this is, uh, this is simply uh, the fact. Plus also because these countries, like other countries, like Iran has a constituency in Lebanon, like the West has a constituency in Lebanon, these countries, the Gulf countries, have a constituency in Lebanon, a political constituency in Lebanon. Uh, without entering into the sectarian distribution, it's not only sectarian. And having strained relations between Lebanon and these countries will strain the domestic political scene in Lebanon. So for all these reasons, uh, Lebanon has a, a much better, uh, let's say, choice in being equidistant of all the Arab let's say, countries, and to stay at bay of all the Arab-Arab rivalries and conflicts. For example, the, the, the conflict between Qatar and, and the Saudi Emirati tandem in the past was costly for Lebanon. Today, the Yemen uh, crisis is costly for Lebanon. Uh, tomorrow, if there's a rapprochement between Syria and the Gulf states, it will have an impact uh, on Lebanon. Positive or negative, we'll have to see. So Lebanon cannot really uh, uh, stay completely outside these dynamics. And this is why it is better for Lebanon to have, if not very good ties, but at least normal ties or non-conflictual ties. So uh, this is uh, to answer the, the, the part of the question. The second part of the question is that, uh, uh, yes, Lebanon is today trying to mend uh, uh, ties, to mend the, the, the problem. Uh, we are now talking uh, at, a, at a moment, Jean-Louis, where maybe in an hour from now, uh, uh, the Minister of Information, who is at the root of the crisis with Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Kuwait, and et cetera, will resign. Uh, it is expected in, a, in an hour from now. If this happens, maybe this will open a crack in the, in, the, in the wall of the crisis, especially that French President Macron is now uh, on his way towards Saudi Arabia. He will meet with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman this afternoon. And probably if the minister had resigned in the meantime, Macron will be uh, able to ask uh, Mohammed bin Salman for something in return and maybe a relative thaw in the crisis towards Lebanon. So it is on the road to be solved uh, punctually, but this will not put an end uh, to the Gulf's uh, perception of Lebanon and strategy towards Lebanon that has been spelled very plainly by uh, Foreign Minister Muhammad, uh, Faisal bin Farhan a few weeks ago by saying the problem is not that or this uh, statement or position. Our problem with Lebanon is that Hezbollah is today the dominant force in this country, and we cannot accept that. This is a problem for Saudis and for the Gulf, because if you cannot accept that and you cannot change this reality, because this is a reality, uh, we are here for a long-term conflict and a long-term, let's say, uh, uh, I mean, uh, cold war between uh, Lebanon, this kind of Lebanon and the Gulf uh, in, the coming, in the coming period. We're, we're reaching the, the last part of uh, our discussion, and uh, uh, I wanted to follow up on uh, uh, your last comments and the, the role uh, of uh, President Macron. Uh, let, 
from the international point of view, uh, there seems to be uh, still two major uh, international players in Lebanon, France uh, and the US. Uh, let's first maybe look at France. And I, I, after that, I'll ask you uh, your, your views on the, if uh, Lebanon is a priority uh, or not for the US. But with regards to France, uh, how do you see uh, the, the initiative of uh, President Macron last year, uh, his visits to, uh, to Lebanon uh, seem to trigger a lot of support, at least from the, the, from the public. Uh, how do you see that uh, initiative, especially now that he's uh, running uh, for his reelection, is uh, his uh, initiative in Lebanon a success or not? Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, uh, you talked about the US. There's a, a huge question that I think we all, uh, uh, I mean, struggle every day to answer. Uh, is the US really retrenching from the region? Under which form, to which level? What does it mean for uh, many actors and what does it mean for Lebanon? Uh, let, let's not get into that. It's a complicated question, but it, it has something to do with this. The US interest for Lebanon is relative. It has always been relative. It has to do mainly with Iran, Hezbollah, and the Western influence that is still remaining in Lebanon and that will probably still remain. I'm talking to you now from my office at the American University of Beirut. This is the most important educational institution outside the US in the world, uh, and it will probably remain the same. So this is something. Now, uh, I think that the French initiative came exactly in this context of a relative American disinteresting from Lebanon, a withdrawal from the, from the region and a disinterest for Lebanon. And also in the framework, you have to remember that, uh, Trump was still president in the framework of the maximal pressure towards Iran and Hezbollah in, in this region. Uh, Macron said that, first of all, uh, Lebanon for France, for many reasons that you know well, historical, sociological, cultural, political, etc., is not a variable uh, in, the, in the French strategy as it is a variable in the US strategy meaning that Lebanon is important for France per se, as it is, not only because it's part of the regional architecture. Uh, and that uh, Lebanon is careful for not seeing the Lebanese society collapsing. This was the trigger of Macron's initiative. Of course, there were interests and calculus from the French side, but this is normal. There were some gains to be uh, expected from a Lebanese uh, meddling, uh, from meddling in the Lebanese issue, especially after the port explosion. France is interested in the reconstruction of the port. It is interested in the energy sector, in the electricity sector. Total is exploring uh, the East Med gas for Lebanon. So there are interests. Macron has an interest, yes, because uh, as a, a, a the candidate of, uh, uh, for presidency in a country that is still a mid-level power in the world, scoring or making a, a relative success in a country like Lebanon is something that he could bet on and bank on in his uh, positioning in the French spectrum. Uh, he probably thought that a gain in Lebanon would be easier, and this is where probably he was wrong. 
his 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 initiative was welcome. It is maybe it was maybe in the beginning well uh, defined and crafted, but unfortunately, and this is the downside, uh, Macron first of all was was entangled in the Lebanese quagmire, so he gets sunk into it, and second. Because he was uh, probably looking for a quick gain, he started lowering the bar of his own initiative. Uh, he was asking for a government that was completely independent from the political forces, a huge, a, a thick agenda of reforms, etc. Today he is accepting a government that is uh, made up of the same political forces that he was uh, seeking to replace. And the reforms has really uh, shrunk down to one or two points that are completely cosmetic. Uh, so this is where the initiative has to be maybe uh, severely judged, not by its original software, but uh, according to what it ended up to and what it uh, accepted to end up to. Now it's up to Macron to decide if this will be for him again in the presidential race or not in France. I don't think, frankly, that the French public is very much uh, caring for what Macron did or did not in Lebanon, probably his adversaries will try to play on that, but it will be short-lived. And um, whatever the result of the presidential election in France, I think that Lebanon will remain a relatively high point of interest for France's uh, Middle Eastern policy, because it, it doesn't have other choices. I mean, France does not exist elsewhere. And uh, it is a place where everybody, including the Iranians, are accepting that France is playing a relative role. Quick question regarding the disinterest of the US that you, you mentioned uh, and described over the years. Uh, does this, does this uh, disinterest lead to um, um, a window of opportunity for other uh, powers, and I'm thinking in particular about China, because we've seen the role of China increasing in the region. Uh, in the case of Lebanon, uh, do you see any um, Chinese interest, any Chinese investment uh, that tends to uh, go in that direction? Yes and no. Uh, yes, because of course, any vacuum will be exploited by now by Russia, clearly. Uh, by Iran, we said it, by Turkey, and probably by China. No, in the sense that it's not yet a first, uh, first level player. It's still very shy, even economically in Lebanon. Probably it will be less shy once the Syria reconstruction will uh, take off, if it takes off. Uh, politically, no, uh, China is very shy in Lebanon. It's almost uh, invisible. Russia is relatively, and I think that this is, uh, and you know better because you are in Singapore, but this is exactly, I think, uh, in phase with China's gradual strategy of pushing its pawns uh, one by one very carefully in the region. Uh, it knows, China knows that it doesn't have uh, yet in Lebanon the sufficient uh, hard and soft power tools. But it is, I think, patiently and gradually constructing them. So I think that this question will have to be re-evaluated uh, in five or 10 years. 
Thank you very much, Joseph. We're reaching the end of the, this, uh, this dialogue. Um, let, let me ask you a final question, which is uh, the way you see the, the future, the prospects uh, for Lebanon. And uh, I'm not going to ask you to make specific predictions, which uh, would uh, uh, eventually uh, uh, be misleading. But if you had to point out a few things that uh, our audience, that the community here, should look at uh, yeah. what, what are the main things to look at uh, in coming months uh, regarding uh, Lebanon? Yes, uh, I, I would say that uh, we uh, we should look at two main variables uh, that will determine the scenarios in the in the year and and more to come. The first one is uh, the pace of the economic and social collapse. The the collapse is happening the pace and the rapidity with which it will go on and the depth that it will reach. And the second variable is the regional uh, dynamic, mainly the negotiation with Iran and uh, the, the, the tension between Iran and the Gulf state. If the pace of collapse goes quickly, uh, Lebanon could witness um, uh, increasing surges of violence, not full-fledged civil war, but social violence, uh, the unraveling of the social order, uh, maybe clashes that are punctual, etc. This will lead probably certain actors like Hezbollah and or the army to be tempted to take action in order to uh, uh, mitigate this. Here, the question becomes the second variable. If we have reached a... Um, let's say a satisfactory level of progress on the deal in the region, probably that uh, the situation in Lebanon will kept under a certain level of control. But if not, the compounding of both variables could lead the country to move progressively from surges of punctual social violence to something that is much graver and, I mean, uh, uh, God forbids, to maybe a, a much more uh, lethal form of violence. And here we get back to the scenarios that we have talked about a, a minute before, the Syrian refugees, the army dismantling and disintegrating, Hezbollah being forced to take actions and other resisting it. And uh, this will engulf the country maybe in a spiral that it, is, uh, it has unfortunately known in the past. Thank you very much, uh, Joseph. This will be uh, uh, our last word. Uh, thank you very much, uh, especially as uh, we uh, eventually found a way to overcome the uh, issue of the Wi-Fi uh, in Lebanon. Uh, uh, let me uh, thank also our audience and uh, apologize for uh, the, the questions I couldn't uh, ask. Um, let me also, uh, for those uh, that are uh, with us, uh, announce that we will have uh, two other uh, great events uh, next week, uh, starting with a book uh, discussion on the, the, the new book of Seth Jones, The Three Dangerous Men, Russia, China, Iran, and the Rise of Irregular Warfare, and another book talk uh, on the 9th of December uh, with uh, the, the authors of a book uh, looking at urban uh, changes in the Gulf. 
this was uh, a great discussion. Again, thank you very, very much, Joseph, for uh, uh, finding a way to unpack all the dimensions of the, the Lebanese uh, crisis. Uh, just uh, uh, to, uh, to finish on a uh, funny note, you, you know this joke, I'm sure. Uh, we used to say that if you thought you understood the, the, the war in Lebanon, is that people didn't really explain it clearly to you. Uh, and I think we overcame that challenge, uh, thanks to the clarity of your analysis. Uh, have a great uh, day and great weekend uh, to you, Joseph, and to all our uh, participants. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jean-Louis. And uh, I hope that we will be able to do um, more things in common between IFI and MEI in Singapore, and hopefully in person. Uh, I would be glad to come to the east and 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 see this world that I don't know. So thank you very much and uh, and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you to you. Bye bye. Bye.